Donald Robertson is a writer, cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, and a fellow of the Royal Society for Public Health. He's known as an expert on the relationship between modern psychotherapy and classic Greek and Roman philosophy, specifically Stoicism. He has been doing public speaking for over two decades and has spoken on over a hundred podcasts, webinars, and conferences. He's also published six books on philosophy and psychotherapy that have been translated into several languages. Titles include Stoicism and the Art of Happiness and the best-selling How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. His graphic novel, Verissimus, Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, is due for publication around fall 2021. Donald Robertson, welcome to The Creative Process. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. And so uh, just to get us started, uh, you're reading now from one, of, just to give us the flavor of your uh, writing, uh, you've, you've chosen one of your books to, to read for us. Uh, I've uh, been very unimaginative. I've chosen the opening passage. So it goes a little something like this. This is from How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. And this is the first chapter, which is called The Dead Emperor. And it says, the year is 180 AD. As another long and difficult winter draws to a close on the northern frontier, the Roman emperor, Marcus Aurelius, lies dying in bed at his military camp in Vindabona of modern-day Vienna. Six days ago, he was stricken with a fever, and the symptoms have been worsening rapidly. It's clear to his physicians that he is finally about to succumb to the great Antonine Plague, probably a strain of smallpox, which has been ravaging the empire for the past 14 years. Marcus is nearly 60, physically frail, and all the signs show he's unlikely to recover. However, to the physicians and courtiers present, he seems strangely calm, almost indifferent. He's been preparing for this moment most of his life. The Stoic philosophy he follows has taught him to practice contemplating his own mortality calmly and rationally. To learn how to die, according to the Stoics, is to unlearn how to be a slave. Uh, well, you know, that's a, gr a great entry point. And really, if we could all just master, it seems a, a bit bleak to say how to die, but it's really how to live, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. I think uh, Stoicism is a philosophy of life and it's a philosophy of love. And it encourages us to face up to our own mortality actually as a way of better experiencing life, as a way of learning to live more wisely, the Stoics would say. Yes, and how did you get started on this endless journey? Because on the one hand, you're a cognitive behavioral therapist. On the other hand, you're constantly, you know, you're writing books and you're in conversation with the ancient world. And um, how do those join up and how have they taught you to, to lead a more virtuous life? Well, how did I first become interested in all these things? When I was a young guy, when I was a, a schoolboy, I started to read books on religion and mysticism and philosophy. And then uh, I studied philosophy at university. And uh, I was interested in Buddhism and meditation. And I was kind of looking for something, but I didn't know what I was looking for. And then I discovered after I graduated Stoicism, and I realized that Stoicism combined the philosophy that I was looking for, uh, overlapped with my interest in psychotherapy, and it contained lots of meditation techniques or contemplative practices. So it suddenly combined 
all of these different things that I was interested in. And I remember kind of joking to myself, I was reading all these different books. I was reading Jung and R.D. Lang and Freud and Heidegger and everything, Wittgenstein, all these different things all over the place. Uh, and then I suddenly thought, now I just need to read Seneca. You know, I just need to, I don't need to read as many books anymore because all of these things I can kind of find in Stoicism. And that was um, 25, 30 years ago or something like that. And I'm still really interested in Stoicism. I'm still uh, studying it. I'm still following it as a, a guide to life. I went on to become a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, as you said, and I realized that Stoic philosophy was the original philosophical inspiration for cognitive psychotherapy. So it, it complemented the work that I was doing with clients. And that became my niche, the relationship between ancient philosophy and modern psychotherapy. And it's really interesting because it does have these practical tools that people are really hungry for. And I think, I mean, I, I know I went to school a, a little in America and uh, I know philosophy isn't widely taught there and more so in Europe where we do have a, a foundation, but I still feel that um, while it's taught, um, maybe the way it's taught isn't necessarily exciting people into applying it in their own lives and I think that you teach it very well uh, and it's interesting to see where uh, the Stoic tradition might have maybe um, a decade or, or two decades ago might not have been thought of as popular or something that people knew about it's there's this resurgence of interest and I think it's a lot of people have come to it through your books. Well, I, I think there was a renaissance of interest in Stoicism, and it's kind of had several spikes along the way. Um, I think it began actually very, first really began in the 1950s with uh, one of the pioneers of cognitive therapy, Albert Ellis. And then gradually those ideas began to find their way more and more into the mainstream um, with books by uh, William Irvine and Ryan Holiday and Massimo Pellucci and my own books that you mentioned as well, reaching a, a, a different audience. And, uh, you know, I speak to people all the time, particularly in Athens, about philosophy, and they'll often tell me um, that, uh, you know, they got a little bit of philosophy at school maybe, but they were kind of turned off to it because it was presented in a way that seemed kind of academic and bookish and boring to them. It didn't seem relevant and practical. And the strange thing about that is that this, the quintessential Athenian philosopher, the, the most famous philosopher of all, is Socrates. And anyone who's ever read Plato's dialogues or read anything about Socrates should realise immediately that Socrates isn't the sort of philosopher that one encounters today in academia. Um, in fact, Socrates probably wouldn't last five minutes in, in a university philosophy department. Um, he loved to be in the Agora, in the street. Um, he, one of his best friends was a, a shoemaker, Simon, and uh, Socrates would hang around with all sorts of people uh, from all walks of life, all strata of society, doing philosophy out in the street, out in the open, and uh, we've lost that somewhere along the way, even though that's, he's the most famous and most iconic philosopher of all, we should all, by his example, be constantly reminded that philosophy used to be something for everybody, and it used to be eminently practical, and somehow it turned into something that you do in the basement of a library, like poring over kind of musty books in a very kind of introverted manner. Um, and so I think people were craving this return to practical philosophy, and they, they really embraced it when it, it began to resurface. And so that's interesting. I don't want to leave your more 
I don't want to say traditional books, but just text-based books. Mm -hmm. I do want to say that you are bridging the gap between now with your forthcoming uh, graphic novel, which uh, is, uh, you know, making uh, the stories, his life story, but also the lessons, um, I don't want to just say accessible, but filling it with that kind of excitement, bringing it back into the streets. Well, I think it'll be interesting. We've no idea who's going to read this book. Um, so people think, oh, maybe, um, you know, reach a younger audience. And I think perhaps it might, but it's not a kid's book because uh, there's in the Roman Empire and Marcus Aurelius's life, there's quite a lot of uh, profound philosophical depth. There's uh, a lot of uh, engaging with his own mortality and the death that surrounded him. There's a lot of brutality um, in the ancient world as well that we don't shy away from. We wanted to kind of show that as well. So, so maybe, you know, older uh, teens or adolescents might uh, read this book perhaps. Maybe it will reach a, a different audience. I get the feeling that it probably will. And we portrayed Marcus's life in a more cinematic way. You know, one of the things that surprised me when you're writing a book about um, philosophy, a graphic novel about philosophy, one might assume that it's going to be kind of wordy and it would be difficult to kind of weave it into a story perhaps be hard to do that but in Marcus's case actually it came quite easy we know quite a lot about Marcus Aurelius's life because he's what I like to call a, a big deal back in the day he was a Roman emperor so we have several surviving histories of his reign I saw I saw a quite a tragic site actually yeah was it yesterday or the day before I was in Elefsina at the ruins of ancient Eleusis and Marcus Aurelius uh, rebuilt the temple to Demeter there after it was sacked by the Sumatians. And there was a, a bust of him that still survived to this today. Uh, but uh, his head had dropped off, I saw the other day. So I think they're repairing Marcus Aurelius. His head was lying on the ground in front of his, uh, his bust. So we know from archaeological evidence, from these histories, a lot about his life. And as I began to write the story, I thought, yeah, we could easily make a movie about Marcus Aurelius's life and it would be really dramatic and really action-packed. And his philosophy is often expressed in the form of aphorisms and pithy statements. I, I once said to somebody, and this is a, maybe a little bit of a glib way of putting it, but in Marcus Aurelius and in Stoics in general, you kind of feel, it feels sometimes like you get a, a kind of bullet point version of Socrates. So in the Socratic dialogues, you, you get these much more multi-layered, multifaceted explorations. And Socrates is kind of playing three-dimensional chess, to use the cliche, um, asking one question within another question within another question. But he's often hinting at a philosophy, seems to be heading towards a philosophy that the Stoics express in aphorisms in much more practical and clear and concise bullet point-like uh, terms. So actually, it's quite easy to express Marcus's philosophical principles. He sums them up very neatly for us. And uh, often he does that using... Uh, examples from his own life um, as metaphors. So he'll talk about the gladiatorial games. He'll talk about uh, little birds uh, uh, singing by the banks of the Danube. And he uses these to illustrate his philosophy. So I tried to dig out all these metaphors that he used and find ways to connect them to things that he would have seen and experienced as part of the story. And uh, hopefully it, it will get people to experience philosophy in a different way. But, you know, the strange thing is we learn about philosophy from books and lectures and seminars. And in the ancient world, they had dialogues and seminars and lectures, but they also did something else. Uh, many people learned about philosophy from plays, 
anecdotes and satires from comedy. And we have many examples of that, particularly in one book, one book in particular called The Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers, written by Diogenes Laertius. It's a collection of all these little anecdotes and stories. And some philosophers we mainly know in that way, Diogenes the Cynic, didn't leave any books behind. And almost everything we know about him comes in the form of, of kind of catchy little anecdotes, uh, almost humorous little anecdotes about his life. So that was a way that philosophy was digested and passed on. And uh, that's kind of died off to a large extent. But uh, maybe this graphic novel could be seen as, to some extent, returning to that tradition of introducing people to philosophy through anecdotes and stories. Yeah, definitely, because I think that some of the most, as you know, some of the most profound truths can come through humor. Like you get the joke and then it just, it kind of opens you up a bit more for the for, for the profoundness it would be great um i think you know uh, a friend of mine is just now doing a kind of summer season of a abridged uh, shakespeare and i guess it you know it's getting to the getting to the point of it um and and so it become it brings out the comedy in it even more so um and another interesting thing that i saw that i believe that your books are quite i mean there's a generation of millennials and of uh, people in the tech industry i find it's interesting that uh, you know, in this kind of technology glazed world where we're all so interconnected, that they might be, they might really uh, be drawn to your books. I, I I don't know if you know why, but it seems like like maybe they find it. What is they want to ask? What's the point of making all this money? What what does it mean to be truly educated? I think so. That's a very good question. It does puzzle me a little bit who the, you know, the people are that the audience are that uh, read my books. Um, but there seems to be, you know, at first when I began writing these books, people did tell me that they didn't think there was an audience for them. They thought it was a kind of niche subject. No one was really that interested in it. And then gradually it became clear that there's a surprisingly big audience of people that really have a craving for classical wisdom and uh, are interested in history, but interested in the relationship between history and self-improvement and philosophy and psychotherapy, all that kind of stuff. Um, and there are different, I, I noticed earlier on when we organized conferences and things like that, I've dealt with so many people over the years. You know, we, we our online conferences have, uh, the last couple we ran had maybe 1,800 people each attending them. So over the years, and I run a Facebook group that's got nearly 90,000 people in it. So I've spoken to thousands of people over the years um, about their interest in stoicism. And I noticed that they kind of divide into different groups. So first of all, there are classicists and philosophers, of course, that are interested in it. That's no big surprise. But then there are psychotherapists like myself and counsellors and life coaches that were interested in stoicism for other reasons. And then I noticed there were sports coaches and fitness instructors who were interested in stoicism. And then I noticed that people in all branches of the military uh, were interested in stoicism. In fact, we ran a military conference recently. And uh, I noticed uh, people that worked in the prison service were often interested in stoicism. And so there were these distinct groups. But as you say, you know, often people describe one of the main groups as millennials that work in the tech industry. And uh, I think what people tell me is that one of the reasons they're drawn to stoicism is that they feel bombarded with information through social media and through the news media. 
and they have a sense that this is distorted. It's kind of sophistry or propaganda that they're getting a lot of the time. It's designed to make them angry and afraid in many cases to captivate their attention. They're being manipulated by the media. It's becoming increasingly obvious to people that that's happening to them. And yet this takes a larger and larger, more dominating role in their life. And it's often manipulating them with regard to world events that on the one hand, they care strongly about like wars in other countries or elections or the pandemic or global warming. But on the other hand, that they don't have a great deal of direct control over. And this, what the Stoics do is offer a philosophy which at its very core provides us with a way to kind of square the circle to continue to care about events in the world without feeling emotionally overwhelmed by them. You know, because most people like would either just get really frustrated and drive themselves crazy worrying about global events and the stuff in the news, or they just give up and become kind of nihilistic and indifferent towards everything. And the Stoics want to offer us an alternative, a third way, a philosophical attitude that allows us to continue caring, but without uh, becoming neurotic about the events that we're experiencing uh, that lie beyond our direct control. Yes, and speaking of one of the uh, millennial generation, I, I think, uh, Jan Michael, you, you are, and you are a big fan of Donald's work. Uh, so tell us what drew you to his writing and to Stoic philosophy, and um, yeah, why are you excited for the chance to speak with him? Yeah, well, the way I discovered your book, it came out of coincidence, really. I'd always been interested in philosophy, but I never had the courage nor I think, motivation to try and study it on my own and do stuff like that on my own. You know, there is the overall idea that like uh, philosophy is such a daunting endeavor to undertake, right? So I remember one day just researching like, hmm, what are some famous philosophical texts? Um, and then I came across the meditations and then I saw Stoicism and I, um, I, I saw the recommendation for how to think like a Roman emperor. So I was like, okay, I, this is, the title stood out to me, of course. I was like, hmm. This is interesting. I wonder what this is about. So driven by curiosity, but then when I read it, I was just, I was really enamored by not only the mix of like, you know, the technical ideas, what Stoicism is about, but how colorful and imaginative it was as well. You know, taking us through Marcus's life, having so many lessons in there, so many questions to make me think about my own beliefs, um, to make me question things. So it was a really powerful experience. And then having read that book, I ended up doing some more personal research on the, on the subject. So I came across, I read a lot of your work on Medium, a lot of your, yeah, your explorations into the philosophy itself. So I think besides just coming across the book and just falling in love with it, what was really nice was that I realized a lot of the ideas in Stoicism, there were kind of things that I already believed in growing up. So one idea that always comes to me is that of like having everything in moderation. That was an idea that was instilled in me from my parents and something I always had in the back of my mind. And then I found out, wow, this is incorporated into this philosophy. This is pretty cool. And so you realize, I mean, much like you said in the beginning, you have sometimes a disparate set of ideas growing up. And when you find one school of philosophy or one school of thinking that incorporates all of that, it really is just a powerful well that, i think that's amazing and you know i'm glad that you you found stoicism and that you got so much value from it it's uh, you know it's quite inspiring to be able to hear 
these kind of stories from people. And what you've described um, is there's one aspect of it that's very familiar to me, which I very early on I, I said it's like people are telling me they've experienced a kind of deja vu, like as if these ideas seem kind of strangely familiar to them. And I had that feeling as well when I was reading the Stoics. I thought I feel like I've kind of heard some of this stuff like scattered throughout. I mean, where I'd heard some of it was actually in Scottish poetry, um, because as a boy growing up in here, uh, I had to read the poems of Robert Burns. Robert Burns is the National Bard of Scotland, and uh, he was born uh, near my hometown as well. I had to read uh, Burns's poetry. And there are little traces of Stoic and Epicurean philosophy in it, which I guess he probably derived from Latin poets that he'd read. And so I thought these ideas have kind of filtered down throughout the centuries. You find many of these Stoic ideas in Christian writing as well and in the arts. And so I, the way I'm tempted to describe it, it's as if, and this is a familiar experience in Athens, as if you were walking around uh, an area and you saw there were uh, fragments, ruins of a, a building around you. And at first you just kind of thought there were little bits and pieces. You know, there's a little bit of a wall here and there's like remains of a statue there. And it was difficult for you really to imagine the whole, but you saw bits of it look kind of interesting. And, you know, some of it was quite beautiful, but it's only tiny fragments that are left. And then one day somebody show you, showed you an illustration of what it once looked like, and you realised it was a colossal, hugely ornate temple that once stood there. And you kind of realised where the bits went and how they formed the foundations of something that was much grander and more sophisticated. And that's the feeling I had when I discovered Stoicism. I thought, I know bits of this, but I didn't realise these little bits and pieces were once all part of a huge system of thought that flourished for 500 years. And uh, uh, it gave me the sense of experiencing a, a huge structure for the first time, whereas before I'd only glimpsed little fragments of it. Uh, so first we were talking about your book. So if I could come back to that, I was wondering, given your background, not only in philosophy, but also as a, as a psychotherapist, um, I'm sure you've written a lot of you know, research papers, things of that sort. So I was wondering what your thought process was or what your thought process is when writing books. How do you end up blending such colorful and imaginative writing with nonfiction, philosophical, hard academia? Well, first of all, um, when I suggested this idea to my publisher, they kind of said to me, I said, it's going to be a mixture of philosophy and psychotherapy um, and uh, history. Um, and they said, look, Donald, when, you know, when you go in a bookshop, and, you know, there's like a, there are bookshelves and one of them is marked self-help and one of them is marked history and one of them is marked psychology. And I said, yeah. And they said, well, we can't put your book on all of those shelves. You know, you, you kind of need to pick a pigeonhole, you need to pick a genre. That's how these things normally work. And it's unusual, actually, to have a book that combines like all of these, these different genres together. But it seems strange to me to separate them because I was familiar with reading the classics, uh, which existed before they were ever separated to begin with. I mean, it's kind of like industrialization and the division of labor or something like psychotherapy and philosophy 
were the just two aspects of the same thing for a long time. And it's only really in the past couple of hundred years that they were torn apart. And we assume that they're done by two different people. So to me, it wasn't like welding bits together. It was going back to a time when they hadn't been separated. And I think people crave that. They, they, at the back of their minds, it's almost like people think, was there a time when all these were just part of one? Does it? Like, why did we separate them? Don't they kind of belong together somehow? And so you, when you separate these things, people can specialize in them more and there are advantages to doing it, but you also lose something by creating a rift between these different uh, disciplines. So when I actually came down to, to write the book, first of all, it seemed natural to me to write it in that way because I thought, you know, the classical uh, philosophy often combines the, these genres together. And uh, in order, the process of writing itself, I approach in a number of different ways. And I suppose one of the things that helped me a lot is that I, I have a young daughter. And when I was writing that book, I think she was probably about six or seven years old. And I would tell her stories about Greek mythology and stories about uh, philosophers, like the ones in Diogenes Laertius. And uh, I started to think, you know, maybe adults could benefit from some of these anecdotes. Like, I know they're already popular. Everybody knows the story about Diogenes the Cynic meeting Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great said, is there anything I can do for you? And Diogenes reputedly said, could you step aside, you're blocking the sun. And there's lots of little anecdotes like that. And I, I thought about that and I thought, why don't we teach these to people? And I, I was well-versed in teaching them to my daughter. Um, so that was my kind of training. I practiced telling her all of these stories. And then in terms of the process of writing itself, I have a poor concentration span after a while of, uh, you know, I guess I read my, my own writing over and over and over again, checking it. Um, but then I, after a while, I get quite bored reading it. So I realized that what I needed to do was to read it out loud. And when I get fed up doing that, I get someone to read it to me. So one of the tactics that I employed when I was writing was to get uh, people to read the manuscript to me. And I often noticed things about it that I hadn't noticed when I was just looking at it on a page. And that also meant that when I was writing How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, the last chapter in particular, um, it seemed natural for me to write it in such a way that it seemed that it was designed to be listened to, like an audio book. And uh, I approached it like partially, like I was writing a guided meditation. I didn't say that in the book, but when I was a secret, you know, but when I was writing the book, I thought when I write the final chapter, I'm going to write it as if I was writing some kind of guided meditation exercise that people would listen to in a, an audio recording. And in fact, when the audiobook came out, people told me that they've listened to the final chapter many times um, and they treat it like a guided meditation exercise. So those are the, some of the things that I did to kind of like try and approach writing from a few different perspectives and try and get my, my creativity going. Yes, I think the oral quality really comes across and what I really appreciate in, um, in all kinds of writing but and and and. Um, fiction literature as as well is the the oral quality when it can almost then become an internalized uh song or i think of another celtic uh, writer uh, james joyce i'm thinking now of the the last most like i think the most beloved passage of the molly bloom soliloquy and that becomes the kind of thing that you can you can say to yourself um that it's, it's but it's really strong the musical quality because i think it enters into our 
it's not just to our mind, uh, but into our heart. Um, but, and I, I think it's also be, uh, worth remembering during those periods that you're writing about, it, culture was more oral. Mm-hmm. And the writing was just like a transcription, but as you say, the, the philosophy was in the street, it was among your peers. Yeah, we don't have any writings that Socrates uh, wrote himself. Some people say Socrates didn't write anything, but actually Plato tells us he did write some things. He wrote some poems. He uh, he wrote poems uh, based on the fables of Aesop, and he wrote a hymn to Apollo, but they're lost now. But Epictetus, the most famous Stoic teacher, uh, as far as we know, didn't write anything. His words were written down by somebody else. They were oral lessons that were transcribed. So you're right, even all the way down to the time of the late Roman imperial Stoics, it was a, to some extent, it was a more, much more oral tradition than we're used to today in philosophy. And I'm thinking also back to this question about um, how we apply. I want to also go for those who don't know and just to outline the uh, cardinal virtues, which virtues seems a little, I think it has a kind of a bit of a bad rap, the mm-hmm. idea of what virtues are, but it's really profound if you can master those cardinal virtues. I'd like to go into that. And also to say, um, you know, you, you mentioned this list of people who are drawn to stoicism. And I had had this interview with um, the uh, Jeffrey Rose and the president of the National Constitution Center in uh, America. And he, and he goes back to that, the stoicism and how that's even woven into the constitution. And really, I mean, we see recent events, you know, in January and the, <laughs> I, you know, all these things. I think if some of these cardinal virtues um, were, we were able to have more mastery, as you say, we wouldn't get riled up and respond angrily. Well, Anyway, the political situation is is definitely one that could imbibe some stoicism. But just tell us a little bit about those cardinal virtues. Well, funnily enough, in a way, the cardinal virtues were the very first thing I discovered about philosophy because um, when I was a, a teenager, or probably when I was about 13 or 14 years old, uh, my father passed away and uh, he was a Freemason because Robert Burns, who I mentioned earlier, was a a Freemason, a Master Mason. So Freemasonry was very popular in the part of Scotland where I grew up. And most of my friends' fathers were Freemasons as well. And my father left behind these books on Freemasonry and I read them and it's kind of a secretive or symbolic uh, sect um, of philosophy. And I realized it was a kind of practical philosophy of life. It was a sort of moral guide to him. It was steeped in religious symbolism. And I read the books that I couldn't make head nor tail of them, but there were many references to Hellenistic philosophical ideas. I saw Plato and Pythagoras being mentioned, and I saw the four cardinal virtues being mentioned, and it kind of stuck in my mind. Um, the four corners of the Freemasonic Lodge symbolize the, the four cardinal virtues of Greek philosophy. And these ideas, we don't even know where the cardinal virtues came from. Plato seems to refer to them. By the time of the Stoics, they, they seem more clearly formulated. And then they were adopted by Christian authors later. And that's when they became known as the cardinal or the core uh, virtues. And the funny thing is that for the Stoics, Um, As for Socrates, in a sense, there's only one virtue. There's only one fundamental thing that a human being needs to do to excel. You you said there's this difficulty with the word virtue. It sounds a bit pompous somehow or um, uh, kind of prudish or something. I don't know. It's it's an odd word. 
Although the people that read books on Stoicism actually seem to get comfortable with it. They I find that they use it a lot. But scholars will often say the Greek word arete might be better translated as excellence. It's kind of more of a neutral term. And really it just means a quality that allows someone or something to excel in terms of their natural function. Like, so a, a horse that has arity would be strong or fast or something like that. A table that has arity would be sturdy. And the Stoics and Socrates believe that a human being who has arity, who excels in their very nature, would have wisdom. And not even just any type of wisdom, but a particular type of wisdom, which we could call maybe moral wisdom, kind of practical wisdom, um, sometimes called prudence, Sophia um, or phronesis. And... So the Stoics and Socrates agreed that this is really the, the core virtue. It's the essence of everything else. It's wisdom um, that, uh, you know, distinguishes a good life from a bad life. But they thought that wisdom applied to the social sphere, to our relationships with other people, would manifest itself in the form of the kaiosune, or um, which we translate as justice, although it's not a great translation, because it also, for the Greeks, includes kindness, and um, uh, benevolence, almost like compassion, um, helping other people as well as treating them fairly. So we, you might call it social virtue. So wisdom, justice, and in a sense, these are the two most fundamental virtues. Wisdom is the virtue that guides our actions in general. Justice is the form it takes in our relationships with individuals in the society. But the Stoics and other philosophers said, there are obstacles to acting with wisdom and justice. So fear gets in the way, as do our habits, cravings, and desires. So in order to act with wisdom and justice, despite facing adversity and experiencing anxiety, we would require courage and endurance. And so that's the uh, virtue of Andrea and uh, courage of fortitude. And then in order to overcome our own inclinations, desires, and cravings that maybe lead us down the wrong path, we would need a certain degree of moderation, self-discipline, self-awareness, which the, the Greeks called sophrosune. Um, so these are the four cardinal virtues, wisdom, justice, courage, and uh, moderation, or temperance. Um, there's different ways of translating them, but uh, they cover our ability to understand the difference between um, what's uh, good and bad, um, our ability to act appropriately towards other people, and our ability to do so consistently uh, despite uh, being vulnerable to fear and desire. And uh, many people find that quite a useful uh, little guide to life. Hi. My name is Jan Michael. I am a student at Syracuse University studying public relations and philosophy. I am also an associate podcast producer for the creative process. As briefly mentioned, my journey into philosophy and Stoicism in particular was kickstarted after reading Robertson's bestseller, How to Think Like a Roman Emperor. Its combination of biography, historical text, philosophical manuscript, and self-help book appealed to me instantly propelling me to do further research into the school of Stoicism, as well as cognitive behavioral therapy. The more I learned about the Stoic philosophy, the more of it I incorporated into my personal belief system, which is, of course, ever-expanding and takes bits and pieces from various schools of thought, philosophies, theologies, 
and ways of life. From Stoicism in particular, this includes meditative techniques such as the view from above, the importance of the cardinal virtues, virtue ethics, and the dichotomy of control. Looking further into CBT has also helped me rethink the relationship between my thoughts, emotions, and actions. In all, it's offered me a perspective I couldn't find anywhere else. Further, the relationship between Stoicism and CBT, or practical philosophy and psychotherapy in general, unveils plenty about the nature of well-being, including how timeless and universal these ideas are. And perhaps this relationship is the most appealing thing about Stoicism, namely, that it works as a philosophical school of thought, yet is full of practical, clinically proven tools. Not to mention, the fact that Stoic ideas are permeated throughout various ways of life, religions, and philosophies goes to show its accessibility. As touched upon in the conversation, there's been a resurgence of Stoicism over the last few decades, now permeating social media and the internet. While I find myself riding this wave, I see it has also too easily been distorted to serve only singular and personal goals, rather than fulfilling its promise as a cosmopolitan and universal philosophy. Along these lines, I hope we can use its tools to help those around us too. But more on this later. The opportunity to speak to Donald Robertson, a leader in various fields, as a psychotherapist, an author, or philosopher, illuminated my own passion for practical philosophy and the power it has to improve every facet of our lives and to help better our communities too. Now, I find myself asking, how can I spread these tools and knowledge to those around me and the rest of the world? Of course, it's a question I'm still investigating, but there are a variety of avenues, whether writing, education, podcasts, and conversations like these, or more colloquial day-to-day settings. Speaking of writing, while some philosophical texts are admittedly archaic and full of inaccessible language, others are full of metaphor and descriptive imagery. Robertson's ability to seamlessly blend these two worlds, not to mention incorporate psychotherapy too, has inspired me to continue refining my own writing techniques. And hopefully, one day, I can transmit similar messages to a large audience, or even just touch another individual's life. Thank you for listening. Now, back to the interview. And so it's really, uh, it makes me think about, and something that we reflect a lot on uh, this in this project in the creative process is, you know, what kind of world do we want to live in? How can we, you know, improve some of our systems like education? What education? What is the purpose of education? As I, as it's being practiced, it's kind of like a profession, you know, pre-professional schools, and it's almost like your monetary value. It's much. It's not the virtues. It's values and it's financial values as as I see it. Um, often, not always, and and so we want to also promote. Um, whether it's stoicism or the importance of the humanities, the, the whole person and the sense mm-hmm. of happiness and a good life. Mm. You remind me of a story, actually. I said earlier that in the Stoics, we get a kind of bullet point version of Socrates and the Stoics are very indebted to Socrates. He's kind of their favorite philosopher. They see him as their kind of godfather, or the godfather of the, the school in a way. 
And uh, probably less than 1% of the original Stoic writings survive today. Most of the writings we have are from the late Roman period, many centuries after the school was founded. We've lost all of the founding texts, apart from a, a few fragments. So we, we don't get a clear um, account of the philosophical arguments that justify the Stoic position. But actually, in one of Plato's dialogues, called the Euthydemus, we get a pretty clear account of an argument that Stoics seem to take for granted. And I will tell you what that argument is. I'll tell you a very simplified version of it, the abbreviated version of it, because it's a beautiful little story. So Socrates is speaking to one of his interlocutors, and uh, they're arguing about what the nature of good fortune is. And uh, Socrates asks what seems like a banal question. Uh, that's his style. He usually asks a question that seems like a no, what people today would call a no-brainer. And uh, so he says, what's good fortune? And his friend says, well, that's a dumb question, Socrates. You know, good fortune is being good looking and having lots of money and having lots of friends and an important job. And if he was alive today, he'd say, you know, a big house and a fancy car and all this kind of stuff, right? And uh, Socrates says, well, you know, that sounds plausible. Um, but hang on a minute, like, there's something wrong with this account. It seems really plausible. That is what the majority of people say good fortune consists in in life. But let me just pick one of the things that you mentioned, having lots of money, right? And Socrates said, I, I can see how wealth would be a good thing if you gave it to somebody who was wise and just, because then they would be able to do loads more wise, just and benevolent things with all the money that you've given them. But what happens if you give a lot of money to a vicious tyrant or a sociopath or an evil dictator or something like that? Wouldn't it just allow them to do more evil dictatorial sociopathic things like than before? I mean, so then wouldn't the money facilitate evil and, and folly? And wouldn't it be a bad thing? And surely money in itself, therefore, is neither good nor bad. But uh, what determines whether it's good or bad is the use that you make of it. And, and that's something that resides uh, or derives from your character and your, your moral wisdom. If you're wise and virtuous, then you'll use it well. If you're foolish or vicious, you'll use it badly. And his interlocutor says, okay, I guess you've got a point there. And Socrates kind of says, spoiler alert, you know, I'll save you some time here. The same thing applies to everything else that you just mentioned. Like, so all of the other things that you mentioned just constituting good fortune are actually morally neutral. Like, and all they really do is extend our control over our environment. Uh, like having an important job and so on, like that just allows you to do more stuff. And so if you were foolish and vicious, that would just lead you to do more foolish and vicious things. And so Socrates says, so really none of these things are actually intrinsically good or evil. The thing that makes them good is knowing how to use them well, and that would be a kind of moral wisdom. So therefore the only truly good thing in life like the Stoics said later, is this moral wisdom. And that's what we should be trying to learn, more important than anything else. It's really the thing that uh, makes life worth living. And that's why Socrates in Plato's Apology said the unexamined life is not worth living, because he thought what makes life worth living is our ability to really examine it and understand it and grasp uh, the difference between good, bad, and indifferent things at a much deeper level than we normally think about them. And uh, this very simple argument um, really is the basis of the practical philosophy that the Stoics develop later. But note that it requires taking the implicit moral values adopted by the majority of people in our society 
and turning them on their head. So society is full of consumerism and materialism and hedonism and celebrity culture and all of this kind of stuff. And this guy that Socrates was taking, talking to took all that for granted. Like, it seemed self-evident to him that money and reputation and all these things are what make life good. What make life good. Um, but it only really took a few minutes of reflection for him to realize that that fell apart. Like when he examined it, it didn't really make sense. And that he'd been overlooking the thing that really gave life value, which was uh, a particular type of knowledge or, or enlightenment or moral insight. I think it's very interesting. And then I believe it, uh, Jan Michael has another question. I just had an interview. We're talking about uh, socialism. And this is another area that's not widely taught. It's like almost been presented as an evil. So on the one hand, you don't learn about socialism, which I think, you know, when properly practiced, does embody moral virtue. And then we're not uh, you maybe if you go to a religious school you you might learn some kind of foundation and and moral virtues but some you know for a lot of people they're not even encountering these ideas with any profundity until they're reaching maybe high school or you know university so it seems like uh it just seems like a shame yeah so while we're talking about virtue um stoic you know the four cardinal virtues and such so i'm online a lot in a lot of stoicism groups on facebook for example other social media website and a lot of people talk about their stoic experiences and their personal takeaways um, but i do feel like virtue is often overlooked back to mia's point about there is kind of is it a stigma or it's kind of a foreign subject for some people i think so i think overlooking virtue i feel like can turn stoicism into something more personal driven mm -hmm. rather than the universal philosophy that it is so i'm wondering how do you think we can use stoicism not only to improve our our own lives but to help improve the lives of those around us i think you're right it's quite puzzling in a way um there may be reasons uh, that we could identify for this um like people confusing stoicism the greek philosophy with stoicism spelt with a, a lowercase s which denotes the modern idea of a kind of tough-minded coping style. So lowercase stoicism, just being kind of tough, um, being unemotional, doesn't contain any reference to social virtue or justice or uh, benevolence or anything like that. Um, and so I think it's probably that people confuse these two words, which sound the same, although one of them is capitalized because it denotes a school of philosophy and the other isn't because it just denotes this kind of modern concept of a personality trait. That's the most common confusion that you find all over the place online. And uh, it's really the social dimension that people usually overlook of virtue. And it's odd because people will say that they're big fans of Marcus Aurelius, but they, they haven't really kind of noticed any of that stuff. Whereas in fact, of all the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, the most popular Stoic today, the most famous Stoic today, um, he's particularly concerned with justice, cosmopolitanism, uh, philistorgia, natural affection, um, the Brotherhood of Man, um, you know, like kindness, um, the whole social uh, dimension of uh, Stoicism features on virtually every page of the meditations in some shape or form. 
Um, and there's even a part where Marcus says that it's the most important part of the philosophy, the, the virtue of justice, he thinks, is the, the main thing. So it's bizarre that people could read it and just not even notice that he's saying anything about it. It reminds me of a quote from William Blake who said, we both read the Bible day and night, but you read black where I read white. So the, there are people reading Marcus Aurelius and just not noticing all of the stuff that just seems to me to be the main theme running through the book. But I think we can address it. And actually, um, I think when we mention it to people in discussions, it, you know, often they're more open to it than they seem at first. And I think if it's presented in the right way, in my experience, you know, you can start a conversation about it and get people thinking a little bit more about it. There's another side to this, which is, so the, the Stoics want to encourage natural affection, cosmopolitan ethics. Um, and so the thing that they think that really kind of mitigates that um, is anger. Um, they think the big problem is, is hatred and anger in society um, and for us as individuals. And I believe that anger is a neglected problem in modern society, funnily enough. There's a kind of modern obsession with self-help or self-improvement. Um, the internet is just awash with information about self-help and self-improvement and therapy, but actually not that much of it refers to anger. And there are psychological reasons for that. Um, when people feel anxious or depressed, they're more likely to blame themselves and therefore they're more likely to seek help and to want to change themselves. But anger is what we call an externalizing emotion. So when people are angry, they usually blame everyone else. And they think, you need therapy, not me. Like, so people with anger don't tend to self-refer for therapy, and they don't tend to seek self-help unless it gets really bad or unless someone else, like a spouse or an employer, tells them that they should go and seek therapy. But they tend to have a big blind spot to it. And so that's why you've got this internet awash with people seeking self-improvement advice but often not doing anything to address their anger. And then you've got, you know, people on self-improvement forums trolling one another and flaming one another, ironically. Um, and and self-help gurus that maybe even say and do things that kind of worsen this and, and encourage uh, anger and hatred and animosity towards certain groups. So the, the Stoics thought this is the main thing that we need to address and that by, you know, making people aware of how anger was destroying them, um, they might become more aware of how it was affecting the relationship with other people and it might get them more into a conversation about what the opposite would be and, you know, what would be a healthier, uh, more like, ethical way to interact with, with other people in society. Um, and then these political problems that you mentioned earlier, Mia, I, I think psychologically many of them are related to the problems that people have coping with anger. The, there's uh, plenty of psychological research that shows that when people are very angry, they're more likely to engage in generalizations and stereotype thinking, and that's often associated with religious and political prejudices, anti-Semitism and racism and Islamophobia and stuff like that are often associated or correlated with anger. Um, when people get angry, they get stupid, like, and they, they make general, they think in generalizations and, and that leads to prejudice and it causes political problems. We're much smarter when we're not angry. We can think much more clearly. And uh, social problems, interpersonal problems are like, uh, it's like repairing a spider's web. They're very delicate, complex problems. You know, I say to people, 
imagine you've got a leaking tap and you need to change the washer in it or something like that. It's pretty simple, right? And you're trying to do this, but you kind of hit your thumb with a spanner and it really hurts. You get really angry. And then because you're so angry and frustrated, you, it kind of becomes difficult even to fix a leaking tap. You want to throw the spanner across the room. Like you start to get frustrated and impatient and clumsy. So if it's difficult to fix a leaking tap when you're angry, how much harder is it to fix relationship problems, a broken relationship? or even what's a broken society, which are infinitely more nuanced and complex uh, problems that we have to deal with. Anger is not the way to address complex interpersonal and social problems, but it's amazing how many people act, talk, think as if anger and hatred somehow offered uh, uh, the promise of a solution to the, the issues that we face in society. Well, it definitely is a kind of um, drug. Um, I think that it's it's difficult now because it sells, um, you know, with television programs and the media, and, you know, there's a an economy supporting it because they see that it gets viewership and, and lots of things. So that also needs to be addressed as well. You know, what is responsible journalism and what is um, inflammatory? Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting, these questions. And I think that we really can bring them, if we could bring them more into public um, conversation, is that there's the, the virtues, which are very important, and then this the civic virtues. Mm -hmm. um, and if people were educated about that, maybe at a, a younger age, uh, but the question of anger is something that we really are seeing a lot of now. And uh, I think that it's been a very strange time, what with COVID and we're kind of revealing to ourselves who we are. So it's a, it's a time for reflection. We've been thinking about it a lot because we're doing some interviews with people, um, you know, working with uh, indigenous groups and uh, learning also about indigenous culture and, you know, in societies where the collective is so much more commonplace. I can't say that it, it makes for people to be more happy, but when you realize there's this in America or different parts of the rest in the world, there's the individual rights and the collective right that that incurs upon the collective. And um, it, it means the rights belong to me and they don't belong to you. So it's been something we're, we've been thinking quite a lot about because uh, part of those virtues are realizing that we have to live in harmony with our planet and with harmony with other people. So um, I, I don't know what your thoughts are on mm. that in terms of the ecology. Well, you know, the funny thing is, if we go back, I said there's not much that survives from the early days of Stoicism. There's just a few fragments. But actually, you know, there's another way of understanding Stoic ethics that, that kind of, in a sense, precedes the talk about the four virtues. And that is that Zeno, the founder of Stoicism, uh, said that eudaimonia, or flourishing, it's, the word eudaimonia is almost like the word nirvana, it's an odd word in Greek, um, but it really means the optimum state of a human being. It means the state of mind or the state of being, rather, of somebody who's living the optimum life, the best possible life, of somebody who's really realized the potential as a human being. Someone who's attained wisdom and virtue is eudaimon. And we translate it as, as happiness, usually. But really, it means doing well, flourishing, being fulfilled in life. 
And Zeno said that the key to eudaimonia is to live a smoothly flowing life. He uses this kind of metaphor of a river flowing very smoothly. And he said the way to do that, or his successors in the early Stoic school said, the way to do this is to live in harmony um, at three levels. So first of all, you must live in harmony with your own true nature. And the Stoics believe that our own true nature is that we think. What distinguishes us from other animals is that we use language and we're self-aware and we make plans for the future. And if we're really going to live in harmony with our own nature, we need to use language and self-awareness properly and to live rationally and wisely and really fulfill the promise of thought and reason by attaining wisdom. So in order to live in harmony with our own nature, we need to use thought well. We need to reason well about life. But we also need to live in harmony, they said, with the universe as a whole and the events that befall us. And they said, in order to do that, we must learn not to become frustrated, not to grieve over things in life, but in a sense, uh, to learn to accept life um, and not to become bitter about things that befall us. Um, so to strive with discipline and courage to do the right thing, but not to become frustrated and annoyed and, uh, as they put it, to complain against the gods. Um, so to learn to adapt uh, to the things that life throws at us so that our, if we want our life to go smoothly. And they said that there's a third level. So there's our relationship with ourselves, a relationship with the universe as a whole or with God. And the third level is our relationship with the rest of mankind. And the Stoics said that, you know, we need to learn to live harmoniously uh, with the rest of mankind if we want to achieve eudaimonia or a smoothly flowing life. You know, and to do that, we need to overcome hatred and anger within ourselves um, and to learn to act with justice, fairness and kindness uh, towards other people, to listen to other people's opinions um, but not to become subservient to other people. As Marcus Aurelius puts it, to be neither a, a, a despot or master or a slave to any man, uh, to look up to nobody and to look down to nobody either. Um, so we must learn all of these things. And this is what virtue, in a sense, consists for uh, in for the Stoics, this kind of ability to live harmoniously and for things to go smoothly because we're reasoning well and adapting well to fate and to the, our interactions with other people. That was uh, really well said. And going kind of on a tangent in terms of relationships, but taking it into a little different direction in terms of relationships between disciplines, because I know, again, you have your uh, background in CBT, um, psychotherapy, as well as in philosophy. So I was wondering, um, what do you see as a potential future or how can the two disciplines interact with one, with one another and help each other? How can CBT and philosophy interact with one another? Yeah, or psych psychotherapy, psychotherapy in general with philosophy. I think that's a very good question. There are actually many, many ways in which they can. Um, I think, first of all, that the way that psychotherapy normally works is diagnosis-driven and time-limited and goal-directed. At least that's how we usually put it. 
So the clues in the name of a therapy, um, if people come to see therapists, they usually already have a diagnosis or at least a problem. And so therapists are what I like to call Johnny come late lays on the scene because there's already a problem by the time the therapist gets called in. And what philosophy hopes to do is something closer to what modern psychologists call resilience building, emotional or psychological resilience building, which is preventative, something called stress prevention. Um, so it's stoicism works with everybody to reduce the chances of them needing therapy in the future by helping them to uh, cope better with psychological problems. It plays a preventative role. And as we all know, prevention is better than cure. I mean, prevention is much better than cure. Like, so stoicism offers that kind of uh, the holy grail, I call it, of uh, mental health research or prevention. And one of the reasons that it offers this the thing about resilience building is you can teach people psychological skills that reduce the chances of them developing clinical depression or anxiety in the future, but it's difficult to get them to continue using those skills. So they may do it for a year or two and then they kind of lapse unless you give them booster sessions. Now, one of the things about stoicism is it's kind of permanent, like it's sticky is the neat little word that psychologists like to use to describe it in a way that CBT isn't. So if I, uh, the way I like to illustrate that is by saying that I've never met anyone to this day who has a, an Albert Ellis or an Aaron Beck tattoo or has a quote from CBT books tattooed on them. But I mean, you wouldn't believe how many people I meet that have got Marcus Aurelius tattoos and quotes from Seneca and things tattooed on them. And really what that illustrates is that Stoicism has become a bit more like a religion or a yoga, like Buddhism to them. It's something that they identify with, um, with the whole of their being uh, permanently, or at least in the long term. Whereas CBT is, to put it kind of crudely in a way that might, perhaps even offend some CBT practitioners a little bit. But CBT, by comparison, is a bunch of techniques that people pick up and put back down again. But if you want to build long-term resilience, you can't just give people a bunch of techniques because they're going to stop using them after a while. You need to transform their character. You need to give them something that's effectively a way of life, a yoga um, that they're going to do you know, permanently. So I say stoicism is for life. It's not just for Christmas. You know, it's uh, people get into it will usually say, you know, they, they read Marcus Aurelius every year or they've been reading Marcus Aurelius for 20 years, 30 years. And that's not true of books on CBT. Generally speaking, you know, people read them maybe once, maybe twice, but they don't read them again 30 or 40 years later, usually. Um, not normally, anyway. So I, the relationship is that Stoicism offers something that's more preventative and that's much broader and more permanent in scope than, than psychotherapy by its very nature uh, could ever offer. Um, because psychotherapy it, by its, its very nature is conceptualized as a treatment for people that already have a problem and is, it's inherently conceptualized, generally speaking, as something that's more limited in scope. Yes, it seems like when you really take stoicism into your spirit into your mind and into your life that it becomes uh, there's this old expression people are always looking for the miracle but you are the miracle and when mm -hmm. when you understand that you can take any kind of a challenge or obstacle that comes your way 
Mm -hmm. Absolutely, I 100% uh, agree with that. Stoicism is inherently an empowering philosophy. It's about getting people to, to realize that they've got more control than they previously assumed that they, in a, in a sense, part of the message psychologically of Stoicism is that you'd, we'd all underestimated ourselves. Like we'd underestimated how much freedom and how much control we have uh, with regard to our own emotional lives. And, uh, you know, this is just something uh, that needs to be pointed out to us. Um, otherwise, we will go through life assuming that we, when we get angry about something or when we get afraid or uh, depressed about something, that's just how we feel. Whereas the Stoics say it's not just how you feel, but it's also how you think. And you can change how you think. And if you can change how you think, you can change how you feel. So you have more control over this than you previously assumed. Um, it's like you're just sitting in a car and you didn't, you know, you didn't realize who was controlling the steering wheel, you know, and suddenly you realize that you could take hold of the steering wheel and steer it, you know, like before it had just been going all over the road. Um, that's how big a transformation, I think, that, how fundamental a transformation uh, Stoicism uh, represents. Well, these are uh, wonderful uh, lessons for life, and it gives us all something to think about, uh, you know, on the individual basis, and it gives us something to reflect about what and what would make a good leader as well. I'm sure you have so many reflections on what makes good leaders, and we're looking for that in today's world as well. Um, so I want to thank you, um, Donald Robertson, for helping illuminate the beliefs of the Stoics, Marcus Aurelius, and present their ideas and words uh, so that we might lead better lives, fulfill the promise of thought and reason, full of wisdom and self-mastery, improve our democracy, culture, and society. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews producer on this podcast was Jan Michael Marshall. Digital media coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.